This is the Critical Conversations podcast, a KPOV special project developed to feature unique perspectives and the courage it takes to go there, challenge mundane thought, and question the norm. We have this discussion with Professor Tom Berry, who will discuss some of the realities of our collective times and situations. Let's leap in with both feet. Racism exists in all communities. It is woven into the fabric of our nation. To what extent is racism a pressing social issue in Central Oregon? Yeah, that's a great question, Stephen. Uh, thanks for um, having me on the show. It's a huge question to, to answer. And then one that requires tracing back into the past to understand the present. I think a careful reading of history is important for understanding you know, not only race relations, but all aspects of kind of the social world, um, our culture, our cultural values, history of development of institutions, uh, institutions of education, the legal system, the criminal justice system, uh, employment sectors. I mean, to understand today, we have to go, we have to go back to the past. And when I was thinking about it and preparing for today's, you know, for our talk today, is thinking back this past year or two years ago, within the last two years, New York Times did an expose, an investigation on 1619 Project. Uh, and the 1619 Project was basically um, an examination uh, from indentured servitude to formal system of slavery in the United States. And encouraging uh, readers encouraging the public to be engaged in sort of understanding the foundational roots, a lot of our systems um, of how we developed our this peculiar institution of slavery, how it was developed, and, and the development of that system, and how uh, we can look look at the present um, and keeping the past in mind. Um, I'm thinking of another example too of a. An author, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, a Native American historian who uh, her most recent book, I believe it's her most recent book, it's called Loaded, uh, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. Um, and in that book, she talks about and addresses and, and gathers a lot of information to support the idea that the Second Amendment was established because there was no standing law enforcement or military within uh, within the colonies. And the idea of individuals uh, owning weapons was a way to protect white settlers. Uh, and so the Second Amendment has a deep history that's rooted in uh, white supremacy and domination and issues of subjugation. And it's something like that, that I think, you know, that, that uh, understanding those histories are critical for understanding the, how we developed our system of capitalism. Capitalism operates in different ways in different countries. And I think to understand the linkages between white supremacy and capitalism is a really important connection for, uh, for the, in the United States. Um, racism is linked up to expansion, development, manifest, you know, sort of that movement West uh, and the subjugation of people of color, uh, different classes, different racial groups, um, in order to maintain these kind of systems of domination, a system that is privileging few at, at the disadvantage of many. Um, I was listening to a podcast yesterday uh, from The New Yorker and the interview with Jelani Cobb. And there's a um, an interview in the interview. He's talking about a new film out. Um, the, the film is uh, directed by Sam Pollard. It's called MLK FBI. And it's about 
Cointel Pro and Cointel Pro's kind of the, you know, the tracking of MLK and how the federal government was involved in, in tracking, uh, monitoring, and trying to subvert the organization of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the work of Martin Luther King. I mean, he's a figure that, you know, we celebrate and we should celebrate in terms of his importance in terms of culture and history. Um, but I find it found Jelani Cobb's discussion really interesting in the sense of that we don't oftentimes investigate the ways in which institutions, the government in this case, is working to prevent um, a more complete understanding of issues of white supremacy and white domination and, uh, you know, not only historically, but also uh, in more contemporary kind of social life. Um, I don't know, Steve, that's like a big, like a lot of stuff about like racism at large, but I want to try to like trying to hit upon a point that it's understanding that the roots of that history and understanding its development over a course of time to prevent us from looking at today and saying, well, race is no longer something that's, that's um, as powerful or as, um, as important as it was in the past. It was, it was maybe more visible in the past. Today, it's more invisible. Politicians and others speak in coded languages sometimes uh, because they're they're aware of sort of some of the repercussions. Um, But we also can see some boldness with the rise and development of Black Lives Matter in 2013 of the sort of this sort of white backlash uh, that that went on. And kind of as a last point, kind of refer to an article written in the Atlantic, uh, the Atlantic Monthly um, by Ta-Nehisi Coates, who the article title was Trump, our first, the first white American president. And I think that is very provocative, this idea that, that the election of Trump was, was also about race. I mean, it could have been about political ideology. I mean, for sure. I mean, not everyone who voted for Trump voted for the same reason. Uh, but part of the reason for support, and I think what he was addressing is that there was the idea that it was a return of sort of the of, of whiteness um, was important for some people um, within you know our nation, within our community itself. Uh, and that can't be ignored. I mean, it has to be kind of recognized uh, part of that. So that's a big question about racism society, about Central Oregon. I'd say, you know, Central Oregon is a is a community. So like other communities across the nation, we face our own challenges. Uh, regarding racism within our own community. Um, It's been really powerful to see over the last few years growing coalitions of of allies, of people of color, of groups of color working together to create and have a stronger voice um, within our community itself. And you can see that at the city council level, although some recent controversy around that as well, but at least there's movement and there's change. The question will be, is where does that change take? How far do we go in terms of that change? I mean, yeah. That's going to be the, the big question. Well, and I'd, I'd like to circle back and make one comment. I've heard it estimated that only about 2 to 3% of Americans actually have studied history to any great degree. So, you know, we're working out of a base of ignorance. We, we really don't know what happened. One author referred to the fact that racism is America's original sin. Mm which kind of strikes a chord me for sure. What do you see in teaching this up at COCC? Do you find that your students are not aware of a lot of what's gone on? That's a great question, Steve. Uh, And I appreciate you asking that question. This is an opportunity to kind of reflect on 
what I've seen as an instructor for 20 some years. I've been teaching sociology of race, class, and gender for about 15 years. I mean, I've worked with a lot of students over the years. It's been a personal journey for of myself as well to become more and more educated. And it's an area, there's always more and more to know. What I've discovered, I'm really, you know, hopeful in terms of the future by looking at the sample of my of the students that I have within the classes uh, that I had that I teach. And students come today compared to 15 years ago, students come into the classroom much more interested, engaged, informed, and for students of the dominant group, much more open and less defensive. Like they get white privilege. Like that's not even something that it's a, it's not even debated. Uh, in the past 15 years ago, there were, it was more common for people's feathers to get individuals of the dominant group to get their feathers ruffled and talking about white privilege. And today there's more just, just real recognition and a desire to learn more, understand more, and also to be engaged into making, basically making our communities more just and more equitable. Um, so I've seen a lot of change in that regard. I mean, and of course, it could be a self-selected group of students, too, who are interested in the subject matter and the topic. But I like to think that youth, and this could be a kind of a regional difference, could be those who are in education and those who, are, those who are not, although I think that's complicated. There's a lot more information, a lot more talking points. It's harder to avoid addressing uh, racism in society when you see things on our smartphones, right? The world follows us in a different way. You can't ignore it, so you have to be able to explain it, explain it in some sort of way. So I think, I don't know, my experience is that there's a lot of people who are inquisitive. The, the justifications of the past no longer work. Yeah. Well, and locally, I think it's been stated that living here in Central Oregon, we've kind of lived in a bubble for a while. And uh, we aren't as affected by economic stresses. The cost of housing has continued to increase, which has made it increasingly difficult. But uh, in regards to the social situation, it's really seen little change by comparison to the rest of America. I can appreciate the fact that you actually teach this form of information, it, it's incredibly important. I think you have to hope that your students will carry this message out to the rest of people that aren't necessarily interested. And uh, hopefully that's what you're doing is educating a bunch of people that will go out and make a change. So tell me, Tom, what role does the majority group whites play in maintaining or challenging racism? As we were talking about, Steve, in that first part about being educated, being informed, uh, being open. You know, for me, if at a personal level, when I'm confronted with something that's new or novel or I get a reaction, like an emotional reaction to something, you know, I need to pay attention to like, where, where's that coming from, you know? Um, and that takes time and investigation and work to be able to sort of understand that. And I, I understand that not, not everyone is interested in engaging in that sort of self, self-discovery about, you know, about oneself in that regard. But anyway, so to go back to sort of like this idea of like a, what role do, can whites play in challenging and dismantling? I think, you know, the word of, you know, anti-racism, I think that language and that, that idea is a powerful one. And it's a distinction from what sort of identifies that I'm not racist, right? That distinction between like, well, I'm not racist. What well, does not mean you're anti-racist though? Like there's a distinction there. I think that conversation is an important one. To be neutral is actually to be reinforcing that system of inequality. Which That's is really cool. Kind of, yeah, status quo. And it's kind of maybe odd to think about. It's like, well, I'm not, 
trying to do any harm. I'm being neutral. I don't want to offend anyone. Well, it's like, well, yeah, that, I mean, that's, those are values that are important values to be respectful, but we need to be respectful, but also challenging the existing system at the same time. Um, and I think the development of that language of anti-racism, there's anti-racism curriculum in schools. I mean, there's a focused effort to provide more information, more perspectives uh, that are challenging the status quo. And I, that's kind of one level of engagement, I guess, is, is being able to be a voice for how, you know, whites occupy majority positions of leadership within institutions. So who's going to change the system has to be a partnership with individuals who occupy positions in those institutions. You know, it's work, it's effort, and it's a commitment to bringing about um, change within in that regard. And then sort of another perspective offer too, I think there's some interesting work on um, sort of ideas of whiteness. Uh, I remember years ago, I read a book by, by Nail Painter, uh, she's a historian, and the book is called The History of White People. And it's sort of an examination of basically about the development of biological ideas of race and ideas of, about whiteness. And it's really thought-provoking to kind of engage in and start thinking about what does it mean to be white? What does it mean to raise a white child? Like even that idea, like that's very profound. Um, and I think it kind of gets to the point is that uh, oftentimes majority group doesn't see themselves as raising a child in a way in which the child's developing a racial identity. And we, you know, we all develop racial identities. I mean, we live in a world where race is a part of, part of the social world. So by not engaging in thinking about how race operates, as you mentioned, I think it's status quo. It just reinforces kind of the status quo. And as I make one last comment, I think it's, I thought it was a really powerful kind of perspective too. And this goes back, you probably remember Phil Oaks. Remember Phil Oaks? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like the song, um, you think, Love Me, I'm a Liberal? You familiar with that song? Not really. I should be, though. <laughs> In that song, Love Me, I'm, I'm a Liberal, Phil Oaks is really critiquing um, people who, individuals who identify themselves as being progressive or liberal. Like, I'm liberal, but then he says, well, you're liberal until a certain point. Until, until that point comes where you may lose some advantage or you are going to be like, there's a consequence to you in some way. Out of your comfort and, zone. <laughs> yeah, you're out of your comfort zone. And there's, I mean, I mentioned one more book in case readers are interested or listeners are interested. And it's written by a philosopher. She's a philosopher, philosopher by trade. Her name is Shannon Sullivan. And the book is called Good White People. And the book, in Good White People, she really wants to investigate the, really the development of how the majority culture develops ideas about race. And sometimes identifying oneself as being a racially progressive is to separate oneself from the other white people. So it's a symbolic sort of thing versus really an anti-racist perspective, which would be not just I'm a good white person, because no one wants to be identified as being racist. I mean, that's a, that's a, a label uh, that's that, well, I shouldn't say no one. I think some people may embrace, you know, like they don't care, right? It's like that, yeah. that like they get that. But for most people, they, they want to appear, it's a, it's a moral position that's symbolic versus one of really trying to evoke change. So to be, at, to be an anti-racist is to lean in, to be a voice, to understand, to evoke change. Uh, the good white person is one who 
is neutral, identifying themselves as being progressive, but not really at the end of the day, doing the things that are necessary to shape the community or understand institutions and things like that. So to go back to your question, Steve, as a final sort of sum, like what can here at Central, what can people do? I think, you know, read, understand, engage, uh, engage in sort of discussions. And that, you know, that I think that process of discovery is an important one. And then serve in positions of leadership within the community. Amen. Well, Tom, I think we're just about out of time. I want to thank you so much for coming on the program. It's really important that we look historically at what has gone on and try to adjust accordingly and kind of slip out of that. I'm not a racist, but being anti-racist. So thanks again, Tom. Oh, you're welcome, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. We'll catch you on the radio. You've been listening to a KPOV Critical Conversation. To hear more engaging interviews on important topics, please visit kpov.org slash critical conversations.